Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, hello. Who's your lady friend? Who's oh, it, lady by your side, Gary? Well, morning, Pete. Nobody. In fact, it's you. Yeah. You're my little lady by my side. Cheeky monkey. Now, what are we doing today, Pete? Well, it's another one of our uh, series on the 16th DLI, based on Foot Sloggers, my latest book. And uh, it, it, it's, we've had a lot of favourable feedback, haven't we, guys? Rare for us. Rare indeed. Yeah, normally the feedback is stop. Please stop. Yeah. But this this has been more successful than usual. And, uh, well, 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 it's the Salerno Landings uh, and Hospital Hill. I wonder why it's called Hospital Hill. You'll find out, Gary, and it is actually the sort of hospital I would have expected to find people. Oh, you mean private? Yeah, no. (laughs) Now, the invasion of Italy, moving swiftly on, was a dangerous undertaking. Very. Now, despite misgivings by the Americans, the decision had been made to strike at Sicily with Operation Husky launched on 10th July 1943, which if you want to know about, Pete, you can go back and listen to our podcast. Yeah, uh, and it was... uh, uh, Initially successful. Later on, uh, it slowed down a bit, but you know, they, they'd done the job within a month. And what's next? You've invaded Sicily. What's next? What could be next? What would you do next? Well, go on holiday. <laughs> yes, you would. <laughs> well, following that, it would be the invasion of Italy. Now, that was intended to prevent access forces from deploying from the Mediterranean area to the Eastern Front. Yeah, and it, it was always, that, that's one idea, whether it's uh, realistic or not. Uh, another was to take advantage of the growing opposition to the Mussolini's fascist regime. I suppose better late than never. Uh, but there was a problem, and, and the Americans, I think the Americans are in the right here. What do they worry about? Well, they're, they're scared that a distraction from the uh, main event, as it were, of the invasion of Europe, uh, you know, if it turned into a bit of a, sl- a slogging match. So what they, they sort of begrudge every military resource uh, that deployed on what they consider to be a sideshow away from the main front. But there, there's a little bit of a problem of their argument in 1943. What's that? Well, it was certainly weakened by the reality that the invasion of Normandy would not be a realistic proposition until the following summer, uh, 1944. So who gets their own way? 
the British. Hooray. Hooray. Yes, we get our way in carrying out a completely faulty strategic move. Now, after overrunning Sicily, an immediate follow-up landing was planned and executed. On the 3rd of September, Operation Baytown began when Montgomery's 8th Army landed on the toe of Italy at Reggio in the Calabria area. Now, that's to clear... If if that's successful, they'll clear the Straits of Messina for for the shippy things. Um, But they were also trying to draw the Axis forces uh, in with a view to a second landing that we should then sort of would cut them off at Salerno, further up the, the, uh, the ankle. Of Sicily. Now, the Reggio landings were a success, but the German commander, Field Marshal Albert Kesselring, had divined the British intentions and ordered most of his German troops to fall back, evading combat and relying on the inhospitable terrain and demolitions to delay Montgomery's advance. Now, the second landings, the ones on what I described as the ankle of Italy, uh, they, they chose Salerno as the main site, and this was going to be Operation Avalanche. Ooh. And who's going to make that? Well, it was on the 9th of September, and it was uh, going to be made by the US 5th Army, which was the US 6th Corps, the British 10th Corps, and the US 82nd Airborne Division, all commanded by Lieutenant General Mark Clark. Oh, I've heard of him. You have. Uh, now, the 46th Division, that that's, uh, that's commanded at this point by Major General John Hawkesworth, that's part of the British 10th Corps, and... That's what the 139 Brigade is in, which is what the 16th Durham Light Infantry, DLI, from now on. And that was commanded by Lieutenant General Richard McCreary. What, the 10th Corps? Yeah, yes. that's right. Um, so the initial 46th Division landings, they're going to be carried out by 128th Brigade. That's the Hampshires, just south of the coastal town of Salerno, hence Salerno landings. Uh, to their right, landings will be made by the 56th Division, and further right, even more right, or south, as military historians would say, um, the American 6th Corps would land uh, facing a place called Paestum. Can't pronounce that at all. Now, the German forces facing them in southern Italy consisted of the 14th Panzer Corps, that's the 15th Panzer Grenadier Division, Hermann Goering Division, Ooh. and 16th Panzer Division. Now, the DLI, so what are they doing, 16th DLI? Well, they're landing in the second wave on Green Beach, following up behind the 128th Brigade, that's the 2nd, 1st, 4th and 5th Hampshire Regiment. And uh, at the start of the operation, the strength of the Durhams was assessed as some 681 officers, NCOs and men. So about standard. Uh, I remember they'd been smashed up at Salerno. Sejanine and rebuilt. So uh, now uh, the embarkation of 16th DLR, that's completed by 5th of August. And they they, they don't go straight there because the LCI's landing craft infantry set sail in a separate convoy heading for Sicily, where they spend a couple of days, um, well, marching. Why would that? Well, this is a Gallipoli lesson. What is it? Uh, It's to harden their feet get them used to it. Now, it wasn't a comfortable voyage for the men or for anybody else. Seasickness? Yeah, that's the usual problem, isn't, isn't it? Uh, but uh, and other sicknesses. <laughs> now, 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 now. <laughs> now? Then came a piece of news that gave many of the men some hope that the coming ordeal of a contested landing across an open beach might yet be avoided. And you're going to tell us what Company Sergeant Major Jimmy James, already one of our favourites, of C Company said. Suddenly the hatch doors opened and the sun's rays stabbed down and we saw the Padre, the Reverend Meek. 
Oh, that's an appropriate name for a padre. It is, yeah. He said, come on, lads. <laughs> come on deck, lads. We'll have a little service. Let's praise the Lord. Italy has capitulated. We shall have no bloodshed tomorrow morning. Thank God. All those lives saved. Italy had jacked it in. The sages, the wise chaps amongst us, said, uh, do you think that Jerry is going to let them do that? Jerry will probably kick them in the balls <laughs> and take over the country. And he did! I was one of them. The, he means the wise ones. Praise the Lord, we'll be lucky. They'll be, <laughs> they'll be there tomorrow morning and we'll see, we shall see the bloody lot. And he's right. He is. And by this time, James was an experienced NCO and he was well aware that things were rarely that simple. Yeah. When, 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 when NCOs looked to you, do you think they thought that things were rarely that simple? Yes. Now, officers and NCOs had to control the optimistic expectations of their men as false hopes could be disastrous for morale in the face of a vigorous German opposition. Yeah, because what's the grim reality? The Germans had expected an Italian surrender and they'd already taken over, in all but name, their defence of Italy. So the, Ger the Germans, they've got to steal themselves once again. And on most of the... Uh, a lot of the officers were, and senior NCOs had been saying, don't listen to these people, it, it's going to be serious. Yeah, they would in a few hours be landing under fire, surrounded by their mates, but at the same time, somehow alone with their feelings, the men actually ponder their fate. Yeah, and this is Private Ken Lovell of D Company. Uh, and it's quite touching, really. A lot of us were going into action for the first time. I certainly became a little more pensive than I normally was. Uh, a lot of men became rather quieter. Some of the men became much more chatty. I wondered what it was going to be like. I wondered what my reaction would be, whether I'd be able to stand up to it. I prayed that if anything happened to me, I'd rather be killed than losing my limbs or sight. Death was preferable to being maimed for life. I wonder what it would be like to have people shooting real bullets at me. It's funny how looking back now that faced with the prospect of death in a few hours, I was extremely calm. I think most of the lads were too. The married men in the platoon were a little bit more concerned. Obviously, they had responsibilities. They thought about their children, and, and there were a lot of fo family photographs brought out, passed around and commented on. I think we were kinder to each other than perhaps we would normally have been. <laughs> I think I know exactly what he means there, I'm afraid. We were called up on deck and saw this vast invasion fleet. Just to our left, there was the war spy blasting away with its 15-inch guns, the shells going through the air, making the sound of a railway porter running with his devil along the, the, the platform. That's his trolley. I had to look that up, I remember. Yeah, and, and the war spy's the uh, Queen Elizabeth class from World War One, isn't it? Which we did two or three podcasts on, and very popular there were too. Now, as the LCIs move towards the shore, they come under increasing amount of fire from German guns. And this is Major Arthur Viz Vizard. Great nickname. Of A Company. I could see splashes when we were still a quarter of a mile off. The skipper was very good. It would have taken all his time to be 21. He means he's about 21 years old, I presume, by that. Uh, but he was very competent. He knew where he was aiming for. We had this profile of the hills. I could see it quite clearly. The training had been good. The profile was there, except that all the angles were much steeper. They'd warned us about that. I knew where we were going to. I could see the town of Salerno on my left 
and we were pretty much on Green Beach. Now, as they approached, there was some desultory fire from the heavy ca- uh, from a heavy caliber German gun. But what they were really fearing, what do you imagine they were really fearing in carrying out a landing like this? Well, I should imagine it's going to be um, German air attack. Yeah, probably because uh, uh, that could be devastating. But to be honest, the RAF and the US. Army Air Force, US, whatever it is, had done their work and they were mostly undisturbed. And this is and this is what Private Tony Sacco, who's in the headquarters company, he's a signaler. He says, this sole German plane came across. One plane. We all said, it's going for the cruiser. I said, where's the ACAC? It's going to seek the cruiser. There was no ACAC coming. When it got maybe 10 yards from the cruiser, that's the way it looked to us. It just disintegrated. Every shell must have hit that flaming aircraft and it came down smashed in bits. Marvellous shooting. So they left it late, but... 10 yards? Oh, it's all exaggerated, isn't it? Now, the the landings were timed to begin at 03.30, but the 39th Brigade would only start to land... 139, sorry, I've missed it. That's my fault, sorry. That's your fault. It is entirely my fault. Could you get the notes right in future, please? I'll try, Gary. So the 139th Brigade would only start to land much later in the day. Most of the 16th DLI were kept below decks as the LCIs made the final approach to Green Beach. The tension, can you imagine that? Excruciating. Oh, but they all had to grin and bear it. And once more, you're going to tell us what Company Sergeant Major Jimmy James of C Company says. We heard the gunfire. We heard the American commander of the LCI LCI saying, I've got the signal, we're going in. I can hear him now, a dramatic announcement. He got the signal from the beach master by torchlight. It's your turn. The engine started up and revved. We were all standing too. Bloody bells ringing and blue lights flashing, all standing ready at the bottom of the wooden steps. Suddenly, felt it shudder. We heard the change. The ramps go forward. The hatch door opens. And there it must have been, the beach. A and C companies would be the first ashore. Led by their officers, they burst out of the landing craft, running down the ramps and onto the beach. It was immediately obvious that things were not going according to plan, because they were faced with a scene of utter chaos. Now, so what did uh, Arthur Vizard of A Company? Uh, what did uh, what, what did he uh, see face when he got when he came ashore? Well, he says this: I was the lead man off. There were two ramps. Tom Logan took one, and I took the other. Then we had two subalterns. They were standing behind and we organised ourselves into three platoons. Number one platoon moved off to its right, rushed up the beach. Number two rushed off moving to the centre and number three to the left. As they came off, they went in their different directions. The Sergeant Major had organised the disembarkation so that fairly roughly you got a fellow moving that way, a fellow moving that way and a fellow moving this way, which dispersed them. There were no solid targets on the beach at all. We all got ashore and ran like hell up the sand. There was a lot of small arms fire, some mortar fire and a good deal of shelling. The sand was constantly being thrown up by quite large calibre shells. I think they were the 88s firing from the sand dunes. It was general fire but I think they were principally aiming at the vessels because there were quite a few LCIs coming in. They were all along the coast. There were seven casualties on the move up the beach, but I don't remember anybody being killed. Now, the, the, their priority, their priority, get off the beach, because that's the natural focus of German fire. Uh, so they, the Durham's move inland, and they, they establish a line of defensive positions a few hundred yards inland. And this is what uh, Viz Vizard says. We moved as far inland as we could get. We spent a very fretful night, 
I don't think anybody slept at all. In fact, I don't believe anybody slept for three days. It can be done when you're that age. It dulls your senses a bit, but when your senses are being stretched like violin strings, it's the aftermath rather than at the time. Now, next day, 10th of September, the rest of the battalion are, are landed. Uh, not all of them were lucky to make a dry landing, and the, the beach area is still under fire. Uh, and and the, some of the mines hadn't been uh, cleared as well. And this is uh, what Lance Corporal William Ver B Company, says. We came down the ramp and spread out, got down on the sands. The first thing you saw was lines of stretcher, the wounded men along the beach, waiting to be loaded back onto the ships. Various ones were obviously dead. Mr Cooch was our platoon commander. Our uh, our corporal, he, he just lost it. He went to pieces. He couldn't move. He said, no, I can't. Mr Coots ordered him back on the boat. He, he was court-martialed later on, I suppose. I had to take over the section. I don't know what action he'd seen previously, but it did happen to people who'd seen quite a bit of action. I, I wouldn't blame anyone for it. A man has it as a breaking point, and when you get to that, that's it. Nothing you can do about it. Another time, it could be you. Good sympathetic a- attitude, I think, that from uh, Bill Ver. The battalion... It was reunited a few hundred yards from the sea and began to move forward, preceded by the carrier platoon. And once more, this is Major Arthur Vizard. On the second day, it was easier. We reached the road between Positano and Salerno that we'd been given as our immediate target. Working with the York and Lanks, we advanced on towards Salerno town, surrounded it completely. It wasn't hostile. The Italians had surrendered. The Germans had withdrawn what forces they had. They weren't very interested in holding a small, isolated fishing town. Now, uh, Colonel John, Johnny Preston, he, he arrives on, on at Salerno and he organises an O-group uh, of his senior officers as he re- takes control of the battalion and of the situation. The whole battalion was ordered to relieve the men of the 6th York and Lanks up on Hospital Hill. Now, that's just to the northwest of the town. It, it completely dominates it and it's crucial to the defence uh, if... if if the Germans counterattack, and what do we always expect, Gary? A German counterattack. Yeah. Now it had gained its name through the presence of the Lamanella Mental Sanitarium. Oh, <laughs> you see what I meant earlier? Yes, I do. <laughs> now that lay on a saddle of high ground with the the pimple on the left and the fort on the right. Now, as they moved forward, Ken Lovell had his first real experience of the horrors of war. It was on the way up I came across my first dead German. I climbed over a wall and just in front there was a bush. Suddenly a huge cloud of flies came up and there was a terrible stink. A sweet, sickly smell, something I'd never smelt before. As I went past the bush, there was a German half-track that had received a direct hit from a shell. The whole lot, nine or ten men, had been killed, all sprawled in grotesque attitudes, many of them black from burns. I spewed me heart up. It really made me sick, the smell, the stench, and the sight uh, of, of seeing men so violently killed. Horrible, eh? Very descriptive, that. Now, the relief was completed by uh, 8 o'clock at night on the 2000 on the 11th of September. D Company was around the hospital. C Company was on their left, uh, occupying the pimple, while A and B Companies were uh, initially in reserve on either side of the hospital reserve, down in, in amongst the vineyards that covered the hill. Uh, you can forget about that, I think, <laughs> but if you see what I mean. Now, Lieutenant Colonel Johnny Preston <coughs> excuse me, went forward to inspect the C Company positions at the Pimple, although in the circumstances prevailing, he was not always as welcome as he might have hoped. And this is Lieutenant Jerry Barnett of C Company. 
Our positions were just on the upper side of the seminary wall, a stone wall just behind us, about six feet high. Looking uphill, I saw a big shell coming towards us. You could see big shells, shells sometimes from big guns. They used to travel slow enough. Bouncing down this hillside, we could hear and see it coming. I just hoped it was going to clear the wall behind us before it went off, which it did, fortunately. Colonel Preston came and stood on the edge of my hole, having a chat looking down on me with his forked stick. I thought, I wish you hadn't come, making our position as obvious by standing in front of it. Officers, eh, Gary? <laughs> Mind you, Jerry Barnett's an officer. Um, the, now, the company of platoon commanders soon organise their men. Uh, they get a continuous system of defence uh, along and across um, Hospital Hill. Um, was there a counterattack? No, nope, it didn't. So it didn't come straight away. Instead, the hill was remotely harassed by heavy mortar fire. The Germans had developed a great expertise with their mortars and multi-barreled Nebelwerfer rocket launchers. Yeah, we hear a lot about them. We do. And this is Lieutenant Jerry Barnett once more. Mortar fire all the time. Awful. Really terrifying. We could hear them start off. They used to be fired electrically from six-barreled mortars. We used to call them Wurlitzers because they had a note as the barrels fired in rotation. Then you knew you had about 20 seconds before the bombs arrived. Terrifying it was. You used to lie at the bottom of this hole looking at a beetle or something and wishing you were somewhere else. The mortar bombs were coming straight down. You can imagine that. And if, if one crashes, you may be in a trench. What happens if the mortar bomb comes and joins you in the trench? You know, um well, you're just buggered, aren't you? Um, it seems to have had a bit of a cumulative effect, uh, eroding a man's stock of courage. Uh, a lot of veterans talk about having a stock of courage, don't they? And this is Second Lieutenant Ronnie Sherlaw of C Company. And he says this, It was my first experience of being shelled in that way. I was surprised to find that quite a, a number of the younger soldiers who'd already been in action took very badly with it. I suppose they'd seen more of what happened when you were shelled than we who hadn't been in action before. I remember one young fellow started screaming. I had to guess how to handle it. I just gave him a good clout in the face and he stopped screaming. We eventually had to get him out of the line. I was and am a great fatalist and have a very strong faith too. I'm not saying that I wasn't frightened. Uh, I had the same sort of fears and apprehension as anyone does, but I refused to let it worry me. I think it was just sort of ingrained in me. My mother always used to say, you can't help being frightened, but never show it. And I didn't. Wow. And uh, we'll just, uh, while we think about that, we'll take a short break. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. During this period, the company quartermasters made sure that every man had a full day's rations. It wasn't particularly palatable, but it had the calories and vitamins they needed to survive. The men located an unusual source of extra water too for their tea in the nearby hospital. And this is once more Lieutenant Jerry Barnett of C Company. There was this peculiar seminary on it, which was a Roman Catholic home for mentally retarded people. This was in the middle of the battle. It had both Germans and our own cooks visiting it for water. The priest in charge was trying to keep his buildings and his people from being involved in the battle, trying to keep him well with both sides to keep it as a peaceful island, as it were. Oddly enough, it was honoured by both sides. It wasn't hit. Now, one of those sent into the hospital on a water party was Ken Lovell, and he actually bumps into the Germans. And he, he said, this Ken, private Ken Lovell D company, we went into the basement of the hospital, a huge place. You could have driven a 1,500-weight truck along the passages. We found a sluice room and filled our cans up. We came out, got to the intersection of one block, and were just about to turn left, and I saw four bloody Germans, also with their buckets of water, coming towards us. I said, hey, fucking Germans, get out of it. So we nipped back a bit sharpish. I should imagine the Germans were equally startled by that brief encounter. Now, the hospital hill defences were effectively doubled as the 2nd Force K-O-Y-L-I... Who are they? King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry moved up into the line on the right hand... Uh, sorry, on the right and around the hospital itself. Now, the Germans made several harassing attacks, but on the night of the 15th, 16th September, there were two serious incursions. Oh, this this is so... Well, exciting is the wrong word. Dramatic uh, and just... Intense. Now, the first was an attack at dusk made by a company of Panzer Grenadiers of the 16th Panzer Division. They attacked D Company positions, which by that time were to the left of the hospital. Now, whoever's on duty, no need to point the finger, Gary. Uh, whoever's on duty in the forward outpost had either been dozing or they'd been silently dispatched before they knew what was happening. Uh, and this is Corporal John Lewenden of D Company. They came up the hill. They spread themselves out, but there were quite a lot of them. A lot of them had schmeisers, and there were one or two who had the heavier machine gun, similar to the Bren. It was dark, but somebody in 16 platoon on the right saw them and opened fire. Once they opened up, everyone else did. We didn't see that we'd hit that many of them, but there still seemed to be plenty of them. Now, one of those taken by surprise was Private uh, Robert Ellison, of also D Company, of course, and it was a real shock to him. It'd be a real shock to anybody. Jerry got right up on top of the hill, on top of us. The first thing we knew, he was starting to fire down. I put my hand out to get hold of my rifle and the bullet smashed it. The butt was blown to bits. There was no question then of getting the rifle. It was just a matter of trying to keep down. I was lying there flat down and some shrapnel went right down the side of my boot and practically severed the sole. The sole was hanging off. I was lucky. I might have lost my foot. There were men hit and they were screaming and yelling. We had a couple of grenades and we lobbed them back. 
One bloke grabbed the Bren. He'd only just got word in a letter that morning that his brother had been killed somewhere on another front. You can imagine the state he was in. He saw these Germans and he just went berserk. He killed a few of them with the Bren gun, firing from the hip. When he jumped up firing, we were able to get out of the hole and take part in the firing as well and get undercover properly. Now, at the heart of the fighting was a chap called Lieutenant Woodlands and he led his men up the hill in a sort of an immediate counterattack. One of those men was Private Ken Lovell of D Company and he says this. Suddenly, Lieutenant Woodlands came galloping up and said, Right, fix bayonets. We're going, up. We're going to go into a bayonet charge. He led us at the front, up the hill, over the slope and into the Germans. We really ran as fast as we could. Lieutenant Woodlands called out, charge! And we charged. Now the Germans were virtually amongst the positions of 16 and 18 platoons. We got stuck into the Germans. I hadn't got my Bren gun because it was still in pieces, but I got a Tommy gun. I think Mr Woodlands gave it me. As we were going, I was firing from the hip. I suddenly saw a German lying down behind an MG42. He looked at me, and I looked at him. I pulled the trigger, and nothing happened. So I swung the Tommy gun round, grabbed it by the barrel, and smashed him over the head. I don't know whether I'd killed him, or whether he was unconscious, or what. I went on. I think they were taken by surprise. There's a lot of stories that the German doesn't like cold steel, but I don't think anybody does come to that. I think if some bugger had come at me with a bloody banner, I might have done a sidestep or something. The Germans fled into a box barrage that our mortars had put down behind them. We took quite a number of prisoners, killed quite a few. I went back and saw this German that I'd slammed. I really was sick. I don't think it was the fact that his head was stove in, but just the fact that I'd actually killed a human being which shook me. All right, he'd have killed me if he'd got the chance, but nevertheless, I was physically sick. I vomited. And that's a, a, another amazingly... Uh, but an understandable human reaction. Oh, all of it. All of it. The violence and then the reaction. Caught cold before they could organise a coherent defensive position with allotted fire plans from their own mortars and artillery, the Germans were soon demoralised and either surrendered or faded back into the night. The prisoners were sent on back to battalion headquarters back by the vineyards, you'll remember. Uh, now, well, would that be it for the night? No, Germans were not done yet. Later the same evening, there was another serious attack, but this time on the C Company positions on the Pimple. Now, <laughs> this is this looks bad on that. Uh, the Germans, remember, are still relatively new. Uh, and the ones that weren't new, there weren't many of them because they, they said your name. Uh, the Germans are caught napping again. And this is Lieutenant Jerry Barnett of C Company. Major, and you might notice that this is a very... Yes, you might notice that this is a very similar mistake that the Durhams are making to what they made at Sedgeny, sending away all the command people. So what does Jerry Barnett say? Major George Joby had his company headquarters on the rear slope in a tiny gardener's hut used by the Italians in the vineyards. It was on one of the terraces where there were these few vines. At dusk, he sent for us, the three platoon commanders, for an O group. We all gathered in this tiny hut, but we never got round to getting the orders because there were sounds of firing from outside the hut. Someone flung open the door and said, We're under attack! Sure enough, the Germans were coming down the terraces, throwing grenades and firing with schmeisers. It was a great mistake to call us away from our platoons at dusk, because they are the critical times, dusk and dawn. They were right through our positions. We were at the rear of our company positions and the Germans were round the hut virtually. The sergeants must have been with us. So that's the sergeants and the officers. Hmm... 
Yeah, so that's a disastrous state of affairs. It is. Uh, whatever they, whatever they what happened. What the, the situation now is, they're in this hut. Whatever was going to happen, they're going to have to. The officers and NCOs are going to have to do it themselves. They've got to organise on the hoof, so to speak, some kind of counterattack. No time for planning or organisation. And, and Lieutenant Jerry Barnett is part of this counterattack. There was a box of grenades in George's hut, so we all grabbed a handful of grenades. That brings me to a little criticism of army uniform in that there's nowhere on a British infantryman's uniform to carry grenades, so you stuff them down your shirt and hope your belt's tight enough to hold them up. We grabbed some grenades and ran out. There was no sort of orders or directions. We just started attacking back up the hill. It's just an instinct, really, when you see Germans in the flesh to attack. There's nothing else you can do. You can't run away. We didn't know how to. It never occurred to us. Sort of unwilling, but duty-bound. Uh, have you got uh, grenades stuffed down your shirt? <laughs> Sorry. No, they're not, not appropriate. Just barrels. <laughs> now, um, uh, so th- the officers are char- and the NCOs are charging up the hill and they're gradually reinforced. They pick up odds and sods as the men see what they're doing and join them in the counterattack. And uh, Jer- Jerry Barnett continues. Hey, what, a, what an account this is. The Germans retreated and we slowly collected odd bods from our trenches where they'd been overrun and not observed. That increased their strength a bit. But really, it was an officer's and sergeant's attack. We used grenades and I had my Tommy gun. Darkness came as we moved up the hill until we reached the little saddle below the final pimple. By that time, it was dark but bright moonlight. Now, they paused just for a moment to consider what's... Well, to... Pause breath, get, consider the situation. Now, at this point, Ronnie Sherlow makes what could have been a fatal mistake. <laughs> and it, it shows the confusion uh, of a night action brilliantly. And uh, Jerry Barnett tells the story. The Germans were obviously on and around the final pimple because I could hear them talking in loud voices as they seemed to be digging in while they used the machine gun to fire at us. Ronnie Sherlaw, for some reason, thought they were some other company's troops, and he stood up in bright moonlight in his fairly light-coloured khaki drill uniform. You could see him for miles. He stood up and shouted, Stop firing, you bloody fools! This is C Company! I said, It's the Bosch, Ronnie! On which he dropped down smartly under cover. Lucky bastard. Uh, total, well, we wouldn't have been able to interview him 50 years later otherwise. Total chaos. Total chaos. Nobody seems to know what's happening. Jerry Barnett continues the story. Complete confusion. The whole battle had been confused, but this was very confused. We got to the top of this pimple. It was a small summit sloping away on all sides, and there must have been a group of Germans about 20 feet away. They were within grenade throwing range. We could see the flashes coming from their schmeisers as they fired at us. There were about five of us at the most on our side at the top. There wasn't room for any more anyway. We were firing at them and throwing our grenades. They were firing back and throwing grenades. I was lying down between bursts of fire, then kneeling up so I could see just over the crown of the hill, see their flashes, and then firing back with my Tommy gun, when it worked. The first time I pressed the trigger, and there was just a rough grating noise as the bolt slid forward because the dust was slowing the action. I got back, lay down again, pulled the oil bottle out of the butt, oiled the bolt, and like a good soldier, put the oil bottle back in the butt. I got back up and it worked. Fortunately, it fired then. It's a very heavy weapon, of course, a forty-five round. A most dreadful thing, really, to use in action. A very slow rate of fire. It goes bop, bop, bop. Whereas a schmeiser is more like a raspberry. 
It has a safety catch with three places. Safe, which means you can't fire. Single shot, which means that every time you pull the trigger, you fire one shot, but the bolt re-cocks itself. Or rapid fire. You always kept it on rapid fire because it was such a slow action that you could actually fire single shots. You had time to let the trigger go in between the shots. That's how we used it. Every shot was re-aimed. Now, Ronnie Shuller's personal weapon was even less reliable as far as he was concerned because it was a standard British officer's weapon. What's that, Gary? Oh, that's a Webley pistol. Yeah. Uh, notoriously inaccurate in unpracticed hands. Uh, and uh, most officers couldn't hit a barn door, I would say. Um, many many officers, indeed, joked that they'd be better off uh, throwing it rather than firing it at some uh, somebody. Um uh, now, Sherlaw, however, is lucky with his. This is what Ronnie Sherlaw C Company said. I was going forward with my .38 pistol in my hand, which is a useful implement. Useless. As, useless. What did I say? Useful. Use. Stupid Pete. Thanks, Gary. As I crawled up a slit trench, I put my head over it, and there was a German helmet came up, and I immediately pulled the trigger, and I shot him. Not very straight, but I hit him. I had a horrible feeling of dismay. That was the first time I'd ever been face to face, and it was fortunate I'd shot him, because if I hadn't, he'd have shot me. And again, this... this absolutely very... true. That's, that's absolutely right. Now, close by, Jerry Barnett was still firing his Tommy gun. Then he seemed to have a close escape from what appeared to be near certain death. And this is Lieutenant Jerry Barnett. Then I heard a little noise to my left and glanced just as a grenade went off about two feet away, just alongside my face. Nothing seemed to be wrong, so I carried on firing. And then I noticed that my Tommy gun was getting very slippy. We were in moonlight and you can't see colours. When I relaxed again, I could feel the warm blood coming onto the weapon, felt around and found that it was coming from my chin. I had a flap hanging down, an artery had gone and it was spurting out all in the midst of this mess we were in. I bandaged myself up, put my chin back on and wrapped my field dressing round it because I'd heard it said that if you put the flesh back, it seals. Wrapped my field dressing round my head and put my tin hat back on to hold it on. I carried on and the action finished very shortly after that. We captured two prisoners, one wounded, the rest had gone. I said to Ronnie, well, I'll take these down because I'll have to go and get this chin sealed up. I can't stop it bleeding. It was dripping, you see. I walked down the hill with these two Germans. There was always a sort of strange friendship immediately prisoners were taken. I suppose we were all in the same boat because we were all relieved to be out of it. Now, it, it, it was an awful cut and, and, and he had a broken jaw as well. It was bandaged up by Dr Jones, that's the, 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 the MO medical officer. But then uh, he passes out uh, on a stretcher. Sleeps for 48 hours, Gary. That's a bit like you, times, isn't it? And uh, he was finally evacuated by a hospital ship. Uh, he wouldn't rejoin the Durham's 16th DLI until December 43. Uh, so two or three months. Three months. Maths with Pete and Gary. Now, they didn't know it, but these were the last German attempts to disrupt the Salerno positions. On the 16th of September, Montgomery's 8th Army had begun to arrive from the south, more Allied troops had been brought ashore and it was evident that the Allies couldn't be driven back into the sea. So, reluctantly, uh, Kesselring begins to withdraw his forces heading back to the north uh, and the German troops in front of the 16th DLI on the hospital ship seem to disappear. Seem. Now, this is... Uh, 
The next story is a, a story is going to feature Russell, second lieutenant Russell Collins, who uh, he'd uh, cocked up. He was in charge of giving malaria tablets to his men back in uh, North Africa, and uh, he'd forgotten what to give them to one person. Can you imagine who that might have been? Well, seeing that he got a mild dose of malaria, I should imagine it was himself. It was. Uh, he was uh, <laughs> cocked up badly there. Uh, so he arrives, and uh, he'd been uh, he'd been uh, he'd, he'd rejoined, and uh, he was in a company and he was ordered by Colonel Johnny Preston to carry out a fighting patrol with the men of his 9th platoon in front of uh, in front of A Company Um, now A Company was at this time being commanded by Captain Pritchard if you read the book you'll find out there's a great long story about how uh, Viz Vizard had been wounded Uh, but we can't do everything so you'd have to say goodbye to Viz Vizard for a while Uh, he's been wounded and he's left Um, and so he's going to carry out this fighting patrol do you think he was ready for it? Well, he certainly didn't think so. He was new to the locality and by no means confident he understood the situation. Well, Nevertheless, nothing daunted, he led his men forward. And this is Second Lieutenant Russell Collins of A Company. I hadn't gone, I don't suppose, more than 100 yards, at the very most 200 yards, before we were fired on from a position beside the hospital, which was about 150 yards down on the right. There was a light mortar detachment there and they were firing two-inch mortars in our direction. We were on a slope leading down towards the hospital and machine guns were being fired at us. I was on this bank, completely exposed to fire, although a little bit concealed from view, and I could see the bullets hitting the bank either side of me. I thought, well, this isn't on. I was weighing up in my mind what to do about these people. Do I ignore them and go on? I hadn't really positively identified them. I decided that really they were too close of my on my line of attack, and that I couldn't go on. Yeah, they're too they're too much of a threat to his right flank. Uh, this situation he finds himself in, it's nothing like he'd been told about in the briefing, uh, and he so he tries to ring back to uh, to Captain Pritchard, who's in charge of A Company, as we just mentioned, and he tries on his portable eighty eight wireless set. Uh, not very reliable, are they? No, and he's doomed to disappointment. And he goes on to say this. The wretched thing was totally unreliable and it didn't have a range very often of more than 100 yards. So I sent an orderly to run back to the company headquarters with a written message to say what the situation was and say what what I was proposing to do, namely trying to sort out this irritation on the right flank and then continue to advance. About 10 minutes later, the orderly came back a gibbering wreck, telling me he'd run into some Germans between where we were and the company headquarters which, as I say, wasn't more than a very few hundred yards back. So that seemed pretty drastic. Now, he's, so he's isolated. He can't get in touch with higher authority. He doesn't know what's happening. He takes what he thinks to be the only rational decision. So what does he do? Far from the enemy having withdrawn, they were very much on the doorstep. I determined to make some sort of attack on this post that was firing on us, going round the right flank, which took me to the right, back towards the hospital wall below our position. As we approached the hospital wall, all hell was let loose and our own battalion mortar platoon brought down the defensive fire slat on top of my platoon. Well, it was the first time for me. It wasn't the last time. I mean, one is just cringing. There's nothing you can do. It's no good running because if you run, you're bound to be caught in the blast or shrapnel. The only thing you can do is to hug the ground as closely as possible and just hope and pray that the next one isn't going to land on top of you. 
Now, the, then it, it gets even worse because what's happened is that the, the, the rest of A Company think they're Germans. That's why they've opened fire with the Mauds. That's why things are going wrong. And then it gets worse because Pritchard, uh, he sees them. They're unknown troops. He decides they're Germans and he launches a bayonet attack on them. And this is what Russell Collins says to that. Our own company followed up the concentration with an assault with bullets and bayonets. I was screaming mad with them, really. I'd been slightly hit myself in the hand, a tiny bit of shrapnel through the knuckle. I just stood up in front of this onslaught of bullets and bayonets with these chaps charging and waved my arms and said, You bloody idiots, can't you see it's us? Then everybody was very crestfallen and we tried to see to the wounded and pick up the pieces of those who'd been blown to bits. I think we were about 29 people and only five survived it. That was a rather nasty baptism of fire. Yeah, it, um, it was a complete fuck-up. Uh, is he to blame? Well, I don't know, but his, his platoon had been almost destroyed. It's not a very auspicious beginning, is it? It really isn't. Uh, and, and, and then... Something happens that really upsets him uh, because uh, he's got this chip. By the way, I'd like to say that if you and I had got a bullet through a knuckle, I think we'd be not referring to it as a minor wound. We'd be moaning quite a lot. Oh, sorry, observing. Uh, but what uh, what happens? He's got his chip knuckle. What happens? Well, he then finds that he's got to be evacuated as wounded. Evacuated right back. Yeah, one suspects uh, he was evacuated to give him a chance to settle down after his ordeal. He would prove to be one of the very best officers ever to serve with the battalion, but everyone's got to start somewhere. And he, he had such a bad start. Now, uh, the next night, uh, well, no, uh, on the night of 19th, 20th of September, the 16th DLI are uh, withdrawn at last from Hospital Hill. They've had a bad week or so up there. And they moved to San Leonardo, uh, which was the 139 Brigade rest area. Uh, it's been an exhausting 10 days for them uh, since they landed and uh, seven a week since they went up on the hill. Um, I, each one of those days must have seemed like an age, like a week. Uh, I can't imagine what it was like. They must have been absolutely bloody knackered. Now, this is a thrilling story, Pete. And if people want to know more, they can get your book, Foot Sloggers, which is available from some mediocre outlets as well as some good ones. Yeah, but yeah, thank you, Gary. That's very nice of you. Cheers, Pete. Cheers, Gary. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or... Visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?